I could not be more excited for today's episode. We are featuring the one and only Brian Cole. For everyone that knows Brian, he is one of the most prolific and influential sports medicine orthopedic surgeons in the world. Uh, talk about a guy that gets things done in a day. I have no idea how he gets it all done. He's the associate chairman of orthopedics of Rush. He's the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, as well as team physician for the Chicago White Sox. He's on every society known to mankind. He is one of the most prolific publishers within the sports med world for orthobiologics and cartilage. Uh, he has just a vast uh, history of experience. I love his passion for education. He is a remarkable individual. We're very fortunate to have him on. I know you're going to listen to every second of this episode. Hashtag follow the fro. We want to thank our sponsor, Heron Therapeutics. Heron Therapeutics invites you to enter a new world of post-operative pain management with the first and only extended release dual-acting local anesthetic Zinrelief, Bupivacaine, and Meloxicam. Zinrelief has an important class-wide non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug box warning that includes a risk of serious cardiovascular and gastrointestinal events and is contraindicated in coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Avoid use in highly vascular surgery in patients with severe heart failure. See warnings about patient monitoring, risk of fetal toxicity, limits use after 20 weeks gestation, and avoiding use after 30. Please see show notes to access full prescribing information, including boxed warning. Visit www.zinrelief.com. That's www.zynrelef.com for more information. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best. I am truly very excited about today's episode. We have the one and only Brian Cole. Uh, he's the managing partner of Midwest Ortho Rush. Associate Chairman with Orthopedics at Rush Hospital, Chairman of Surgery uh, for Rush Hospital, Head Team Physician for the Chicago Bulls, Co-Team Physician for the Chicago White Sox, Past President of Anna. I think I could go for another 45 minutes going through his CV, but we're not going to do that. But literally, Brian is one of the, the most prolific and influential sports medicine orthopedic surgeons in our country and the world. And Brian, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to talk to you and share some things with your listeners. That's awesome. So we usually like to start in the beginning. So if I had to guess, it looks like you were born and bred in Chicago, but you know, I could be wrong, but tell us about your childhood and when orthopedics seemed to come along for you. Or did you have doctors in the family, all that kind of good stuff? I would say it was maybe a little bit atypical, um, even all the way through the uh, two and through the time I chose orthopedics. But yes, I grew up in Chicago in the Northern suburbs of Chicago. Not a, singer, not a single doctor in my family. I think I could find a dentist a couple generations over uh, um, and, and their doctors too. Uh, but uh, no, not a single physician in my family. And uh, I think I, uh, I made my decision very early on, uh, somewhere around seventh or eighth grade. Um, I had this sense that I wanted to be in medicine. Uh, and, you know, I would do, all of us make decisions in life based on role models. And I think that... Uh, Mine was in part based on uh, a pediatrician that I had when I was growing up that I just 
thought was amazing. And um, I, I thought it was really interesting how someone could identify a problem or you know, interact with someone and have a fund of knowledge and make a difference in someone's life. And I rec- recognized it really very early on. I think that that's, I actually think that's very similar to, to many of us in terms of how we make our decisions. Um, it's based on some specific role model. And then, you know, it kind of moved on from there. But I, I wasn't really serious, Scott, until I was probably in high school. I played football in high school. You wouldn't know it by my stature, but um, I played football in high school, even from from third grade, actually. And um, probably it was sophomore year where I said, look, um, if I'm going to do this, I have to start uh, actually concentrating a little bit on grades and things like that, because I wasn't even a serious student until I was you know, mid-high school, which is probably early by some people's standards. So yeah, so, that was probably the initiator. Yeah. So, so it sounds like, you know, the doctor thing for whatever reason, pediatrics, which is interesting that that's uh, sort of where you started, but it sounded like, you know, definitely medical school or doctoring is something that you wanted to do early on. You figured that out in high school, but not necessarily orthopedics, but the idea of getting into healthcare was interesting. So, so you, you finally figure it out and you start studying and, uh, and then you go to the university of Illinois. Yeah, so I was in a um, unique situation uh, early on. I uh, ended up uh, having to uh, actually pay for uh, college uh, and then medical school, ultimately medical school, and knew that was going to be the case and applied to a lot of different colleges and uh, ended up going to University of Illinois, you know, in part because it was, you know, financially, you know, less, less stressful, quite frankly, but also it ended up being a great school. Um, and good experience, but there were some decisions that were made, a hybrid of sort of financial versus academic for me. Um, I used to run a, a business in high school called A to Z Handyman with a, one of my, my, my then best friend, Don, and we used to literally seal driveways, wash windows, things of that, you know, just in our, in our neighborhood and uh, paint uh, addresses on, on curbs so the firefighters could find the houses and things like that. I mean, we had a whole thing going. And um, I we used to we used to do very very well, so I was always very entrepreneurial from uh, the time I was quite young, and that's how I helped pay for my school. So I knew it was going to be a decision to stay in state, and then there was probably there's no there was much less flexibility when choosing medical school. And when I went, I you know I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I went from um, pediatrics to pediatric uh, literally uh, pediatric psychiatry to OBGYN with infertility to orthopedics. In fact, I was so indecisive when I came to uh, apply to uh, residencies that I think I applied both to ortho and OBGYN, not, not knowing exactly sure what I wanted to do. I mean, it was that crazy. I had a lot of passion for what I was learning, but I, you know, it was, I, I don't want to say all over the place. There was some common themes and the things that I was interested in, but, you know, one would argue it was kind of all over the place, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that that's interesting. And we hear that a lot on the show. There's a lot of pathways, you know, some people knew in 10th grade, I'm going to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon, but other people didn't figure it out until they were through medical school. But I'm, I'm hearing a theme, you know, and, and I think that you know, it's an early theme, which is, you're a busy guy, you're playing football, you're an entrepreneur, you're figuring out a way to put yourself through college. And so I, I see, you know, as I look at your CV and all the things that you're doing in your in your professional career now, I, I think it was a uh, very early on that that theme sort of was created. So, so then you're, you're, you, you get to university of Chicago for medical school and you figure it out and now it's going to be OB or orthopedics. I gotta say, that's the first time I've heard that, yeah, yeah. which is awesome, but uh, you go and you're in, and I guess, you know, hospital for special surgery was calling you, which, you know, what an amazing residency. And just tell us about that process of, of getting into HSS and, mm-hmm. and your, your, how that all worked out. 
when I was at uh, UFC between years three and four, um, I, we started to see what was happening because I was interested in OBGYN. There was that, um, that sort of transition of people getting out of OBGYN. The litigation was really high. There was a lot of job dissatisfaction and so forth. And the, the other thing that was happening around that time was uh, HMOs, uh, first managed care programs were actually happening in California. And um, I sort of recognized that I had zero business acumen. I, I hadn't had a single business class in my entire education, except like this, I remember, and I think it was literally in grammar school, it was something called intro to business where you learn like what a bank is, you know? And um, so I uh, stepped out for a year, did uh, uh, a master, an MBA at University of Chicago in health administration, just to sort of get some background and it gave me a sense of, you know, a chance to sort of hone in on exactly what I wanted to do. And I remember when I came to Mike Simon, who was the chairman of University of Chicago, uh, and I said, I wanted to do orthopedics. He had no idea who I was. Like you said, like people, a lot of people go into orthopedics, they do it, um, because they had an injury. They had, you know, they, exactly. they, they were out of sport. I mean, they, you know, everyone's going to when you read, all, I, I deal with the, the fellowship applicants and, and the residents as well, but you go back to their personal statements and there's always something related to orthopedics or, you know, you know, they like to tinker, they like to make things, like to build things, whatever it is. But I, you know, that was, I had that, but a lot of other interests. So Mike was like, look, you're pretty late to the game. I'm not sure how competitive you'll be. And um, amazingly, I got uh, an interview at HSS. I didn't even do a rotation there, which is also unusual. And um, got into HSS, which was pretty fantastic. Uh, did my uh, did my general surgery year in Loyola in Chicago and uh, went out to New York. And um, I did a year research, you know, when I first applied to med school, I actually did, the, the, I came into the MSTP program because I knew I wanted to do research as well and kind of learn one of the great things about orthopedics that, that kept me there is because it had the, the ability to do research without having to be a, a PhD or even a master's, you know, there was so many unanswered questions, uh, yet you could do something really cool and take care of people who were, you know, had very specific problems, but, you know, weren't sick in the middle of the night. And, you know, it was just, you know, there was all the other things that you could sort of keep it straightforward and uh, you have lots of interactions to help people. And um, at any rate, I did your research with Joe Lane and uh, metabolic bone disease and um, cartilage biology and finished my residency in 97. And um, it was again through role models that I chose uh, sports. It was HSS just had such a, a, a you know, Russ Warren was a, a pretty terrific mentor. He, he is a guy who just always continues to want to learn. That was made a big impression on many of us. And, uh, and it wasn't like I was just enthralled with athletes or that was, you know, I wanted to be around uh, 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 you know, high level athletes all the time. It was that the thinking that went into making decisions was really compelling. And a guy like Russ, we used to do these, these, the, like these grand rounds or the Socratic method. I don't know if you remember, and I don't know how much of it you had because it's it's almost a thing of the past where you literally the, the, the day after surgery you you get up and do rounds at six in the morning with the attending and you talk about things, go from room to room to room and make the orders and figure out what your day is going to be all about. And that that was a thing that was falling by the wayside, especially in orthopedics. And um, Russ, we did that every day on Russ's rotation. I just remember those things, and I think that was a big reason why I ended up choosing it. You know, going yeah, we're, we're we're contemporaries. I think we're. Uh, I'm 57. You got to be right around yeah. there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we were there doing the same thing. So, yeah, I had Ben Beerbound in New England Baptist Hospital, who was running us around and giving breakfasts and Henry. Yeah, Gale. 
it was just the way we did things back then. You know, it was early rounds, you know, you educated, it was passed down a lot of experience-based medicine right now. We really have been pushing towards evidence-based medicine, but that was a big passion, but you know, it's at HSS, you've got lots of options. I mean, you have one of the more, you know, the most impressive residencies with subspecialization within orthopedics and yet sports medicine called your name. I'm sure Dave Altchek was there making a big part of what you were doing. What what other names do you want to give shout outs for, for, for your residency for sure? Um, you know, it was, it's interesting. It wasn't all sports, but Dave was clearly one of them. Um, the fellows we were training at the time. So I was junior to them, the, the, the individuals are coming in doing sports medicine fellowships. That was actually, you know, that's, oh gosh, you know, Larry Field, T. Mormon, um, uh, Eric Carson. I mean, there was just, there was, there was just dozens of people coming through there. Uh, but clearly in the sports service, it was, you know, Joe Hannafin and Dave Alchek and Tom Wickowitz. Um, no, there was all, they, they all were very different, but, uh, uh, at the same time, really sort of, uh, you know, impactful on, on, our, on my thinking, but there was, you know, HSS was, a, is, and was a land of giants at the time. And there was some individuals who had been in practice, you know, 30, 40 years. I mean, I think even today they may have the largest number of people still practicing doing surgery over the age of 80. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, where, where I'll be when I'm 80, but I find that pretty interesting. But yeah, so it was sports. And then um, I ended up going to, uh, to a, you know, was, I often say that uh, we choose things based on, um, you know, life offers. It's sort of the smorgasbord of people that we can be exposed to. And you don't have to choose all the elements of individuals, but you might find one or two compelling things. And when I put it all together, the, the role models through, you know, out my training uh, and just life, life experiences, um, including fellowship where I went to Pittsburgh, where I was with uh, J.P. Warner and Chris Harder. Um, Freddie Fu, um, and and of course the the, the recently passed Freddie Fu, who was a, a really close friend of mine, uh, many of ours. Um, uh, that you know that sort of completed my you know the initiation training. But you know we we often say we're never done learning, and um, that's so, one of the great things about our specialty. You know, and it's interesting. People do fellowships for a lot of reasons, right? Sometimes people do fellowships to fulfill something that was missing in their residency, uh, or maybe to sort of help get a job. But uh, I think that what I really appreciate is that you know you had this amazing residency sports medicine uh, specialization, and yet decided to still go on and do an amazing fellowship with with the great Freddie Fu and Chris Harner. And I guess we should say the young J.P. Warner at the time. How many years was he yeah. in practice at that time? I, mean, I, I think J.P., you know, he had also done his fellowship at HSS. He was out probably less than five years at the time. So very similar story for me. I went out and did my fellowship at Curl and Job and Neil Elitrosh had been in practice for about three to four years and he was working very closely with Frank Job. And uh, so it was just amazing to work with, you know, amazing attendings, but that similar thing, you know, and, and Neil was, was fantastic. I mean, he was, he was a fellows doc, you know, we could do cases with him, and he always made sure. So it's interesting that you were working with JP at a very young age at this point as well. I found that fascinating. Yeah. You know, if you, like you say, you, we, you, you were blessed to go to a great residency where you get a great training and you wonder, you know, how necessary is it? But if you, fellowship is one of those things that if you go to the right one, it propels you, you know, five years into the future, not just because you're doing bread and butter things, but you learn how to manage a practice. Uh, but you get exposed to, you know, the complexities and sort of the, the opportunity to do tertiary care in your specialty. And, and you know, forget about the research opportunity just because, you know, that speaks for itself, but it's just becoming a clinician. It's, it really doesn't stop in residency. In fact, it doesn't stop as you, you know, you know, if you train residents and fellows, it stops, it keeps going. We, we hopefully just get better and better based upon our experiences. But fellowship was one of those things that propelled me, I think, five years forward, just because of the, 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 the sheer volume 
that we had at that time. And Freddie was insanely busy. Um, and um, it was, it was organized chaos, I guess I would say, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then research too. I mean, it's a passion of yours. It's been a passion of yours early on in your career. So I'm sure you were able to get some, you know, amazing research done, you know, on the basic science side of things with cartilage, et cetera, at the same time during fellowship. One of my, but the, probably the, the most fun projects that I remember was a study I did with uh, actually not in Nevo's and shoulder was a, a prospective evaluation of patients undergoing shoulder stabilization with uh, a SureTac device. If you remember, oh we, god, we, yeah, yeah. Sure. So we so we used to call it the, <laughs> we, we used to call it the sugar tech, and yeah. um, because it Ugh. would just dissolve, and we had you know some inflammatory responses, things like that. But I literally would drive up to you know rural Pittsburgh to do follow up for these these uh, JP's patients, you know, to try to get you know seventy five percent or more follow up, and would do it, you know, it'd be in these trailer parks and these the you know farms and you know laborers and the steel plants and then you know every once in a while you get an executive in downtown Pittsburgh but driving on weekends all over just to do a physical exam on on patients to capture about 100 patients it was ultimately was was published in JBJS but it was a lot of it was a lot of legwork uh, but that just was my first experience at you know on the ground uh, trying to get good follow up for something that could actually get published yeah, I mean, shoulder arthroscopy was really in its earliest phases back then. We were yeah. really open for instability and for rotator cuff repairs. And, you know, the SureTac was one of the initial devices for the slap tear in particular that, you know, so we had something that we could use, right, to actually right. do something while we were there. Of course, it turns out that was not the best uh, choice uh, of, of material to use, obviously, but uh, certainly has propelled us to uh, really what we're, we're doing now with such amazing instrumentation and techniques and the things that we do now compared to yeah, no, that's, that no. doesn't seem so long ago, but no. I, you know. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, I remember we were just yeah. doing instability, sure techs. We were dabbling with, you know, arthroscopic subacromal decompressions and trying to figure out how you get stuff in to fix a rotator cuff. But yeah, I, w- I was at that transition- transitional year when I came out, I had to learn how to do arthroscopic cuffs by myself. Yeah, uh, there was no, no one to train me. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, the instrumentation was just so basic back then. And yeah. Uh, you know, but you could get it done. But the visualization was amazing. We recognized that, you know, we can see things much better. And then eventually the technology technology and instrumentation caught up. But so it's time to go back to Chicago, man. Chicago has been calling you. It's just your life. You know, it's when you went out, you learned some stuff elsewhere, and then you came back and you joined the staff at Rush. And so tell us about who was there at Rush when you were coming on board. And, you know, because the program has really, you know, blossomed at this point so much. But what was your experience when you first came on? You know, I was a uh, fourth year resident at uh, special surgery and Bernie Bach called me, who was the, at the time and for a long time, the division or section head for, for sports at, at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. And um, he says, look, I don't think you're going to choose us for your fellowship uh, training, but uh, we really want to have you back here in Chicago. And um, I, I had a essentially a signed contract as a fourth year resident to come back to Chicago after my uh, fellowship training, which was probably the biggest uh, relief, stress reliever that anyone could have at that stage of your life, because everyone's concerned about where am I going to be. But uh, that being said, I did look. I mean, I did do some looking in Florida and uh, New York and so forth. But it was I got I met my wife when I was a resident, and we were just getting married. She's from the Midwest, and it's in Chicago seemed to make the most sense. And Rush was uh, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush at that time. It was oh gosh, University Orthopedics maybe, and. Um, it was uh, about a third of the size that it is now. We're, you know, now we're like a hundred providers, but then we're, we were, you know, maybe 10. And it was Chuck Bush Joseph, uh, Chuck's 
uh, still practicing, wonderful. Bernie just retired and uh, Tony Romeo. And that was it. And um, I was coming in uh, as the fourth person uh, to build a cartilage program because that was really one of my passions. And then to do sort of complex shoulder when it came to tendon transfers, things of that nature, and then basic sports. And I was really only interested in shoulder, elbow, knee. That was my training and I was going to limit it. And some would say that's not very limited. It's funny when you have visitors from outside of the country, like, like just do left knees, you know, they think that we're almost general orthopedists, but yeah, I was, I wanted to do sports. So for me, that was shoulder, elbow, knee and uh, started a cartilage program in 97, which was, you know, I think really the first of its kind because it was such a disorganized space. We didn't know really how to think about it. We, know, we didn't know how to make decisions. We, very, other than marrow stimulation or abrasion arthroplasty, we didn't really know um, what was gonna work. And I saw in residency, very little work. So we were just placating or providing palliative care for our patients. So that was my goal when I came there. And Bernie was an incredible, Bernie is and was an pr- incredible program builder. He, his motto was always bring someone in better than yourself and surround yourself with excellence. And uh, again, Bernie, you know, I have lots of wonderful role models, but Bernie would uh, be right up there. And, uh, that vision has continued today to now we're just doing you know, nine or 10 uh, faculty, just in the section sports medicine, 50 orthopedic surgeons, almost the group now is uh, we're 750 employees and hundred providers. So it's, it's really expanded. Yeah. I mean, I, I get a sense when I hear this story, a very similar <clears throat> story to, to Rothman in Philadelphia and, you yeah. know, just a very small group, you know, we had Jay Parvizi on, he was like the number 11, you know, attending when he came on board and, and, uh, and again, the, some of the things that I hear, which, which, you know, are remarkable is that you really have a very you know deep passion for clinical orthopedics, but also for the research behind the things that we do. And we'll talk some more about that as we get going. But one of the other things about, about Rush, which I, I think is, is pretty fascinating, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, do you guys run it like a private-demic type model as well, private practice, but yet you get the benefits of being in the academic world? Yeah, I think it's the, uh, the, I believe, the perfect blend of um, uh, private private independent practice that allows sort of entrepreneurialism, which I can tell you factually, you know, elevates the quality of care and service component uh, for patients. And then it offers the foundation of an academic institution, like which is an excellent institution, which is Rush. And, you know, if you're going to run an academic Academic program requires a department. It requires a multidisciplinary approach. You know, biomechanics, anatomy, cellular biology. You know, all of those things have to be available if you want to do research. But there's also the ACGME portion and the GME portion to run a residency and a fellowship. Um, and then there's the philanthropy side. So um, having that behind us has uh, been pretty amazing. I can't think of a better. Uh, set up at least for me and the group that we have. And I think that's, it speaks to how you thrive in medicine uh, where you have a level of, if, if you're interested in research, because you could be simply a straightforward private practice too. But if there's a research bend or an education bend or an innovation bend, uh, having an institution or first class institution behind you, but optimizing that relationship, creating synergies is, is really one of the most opportunistic you know, po- positive environments that one could be in. You know, I've been periodically. It's I'll, I'll, you know, we all we get these invitations to come interview somewhere just to see. You know, maybe we'll do something different, and you know, chairman things and things like that. And I go and I'm like, look, there's just no way I could duplicate what the what we have uh, been able to do, and you know, this the the collaboration we have with an institution, but we can stay just far enough away uh, to keep behaving as if an independent private practice that is all about you know 
efficiencies and cost containment, but at the same time, delivering the best product. I mean, it is a service industry and it, it can be difficult when you're deeply embedded in a hospital system where you're not perfectly aligned to deliver this, you know, the kind of care that I think you can in a private setting. And then it, also the, the benefit of doing the research. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of <laughs> we're aligned, but we're not necessarily aligned with always the interests within a hospital setting or even a teaching institution, right? I mean, I think that uh, first of all, with innovation, you know, if you're truly in an academic setting, you can be really stymied on your ability to innovate outside and develop ideas and things that are outside of the academic setting. So I love that. Uh, really allows you to be a part of industry, but yet uh, still do amazing work with education, uh, research as well. All the things that you said, you know, quite poignantly. All right, we're going to take a short break to listen to our sponsor, Trackable Med. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Trackable Med. You work like crazy, but you make less every year. You feel busy, but it's not with the procedures you want. The problem is you rely on referrals, which are out of your control. Maybe you've tried advertising, maybe a new website, but there are always questions. Is it working? Am I wasting money? How can you get more of the patients you want on purpose? Trackable Med. Trackable Med was born out of a frustration with an advertising industry riddled with a lack of accountability to actual outcomes. With Trackable Med, it's all about the results defined as something you can deposit into a bank account. Results are achieved through an approach rooted in neuroscience, advertising, web design, and even appointment setting patient engagement solutions. Everything is designed with purpose towards your goal and all with no contracts. Find out if accelerating patient demand for your practice with Trackable Med is a good fit for you. Visit trackablemed.com and click on free consultation. So Brian, we're back to the next topic, which I know you have an incredible passion for, which is education. Uh, I know that you're involved in the residency, but I think the fellowship is sort of really your baby. And, uh, you know, it is clearly you know, one of the most sought after fellowships in the world right now for sports medicine. And I just, you know, I just adore your fellows. I mean, I run down the list here, Jorge Chalas, Sherbin, Rachel Frag, the Nordamador is a personal friend that we just, uh, that just graduated the program. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, we've had four or five of them on the ortho show and, you know, it's your family, you know, I've seen them, you take them to the, to the lake house where you are right now. Yeah. And, you, and, and I know that you're that, that the ability to mentor and be you know, great friends. Tell us about your passion for that, where that developed and why it's so important to you. Um, I, you know, I think I'll, I'll just start by, you know, you know, those who listen to your episodes and I know you have a great following, you know, I remember this story on um, NPR where there was a, uh, and I shared this for my presidential address at Anna, because it's something that's always stuck with me is a, it was an 85 year old woman who was a kindergarten teacher who ran into a former kindergarten teacher who was, you know, uh, gracefully retired and uh, living sort of the, the last episodes of her life. And she ran into one of her students who was probably in his sixties, you know, she was a young teacher and he came up to her and he says, you know, you are, uh, you are the most memorable, uh, were the most impactful individual in my life as my kindergarten teacher. I never had a chance to tell you that. And she starts tearing up on the uh, NPR episode saying, look, you know, one of the things I realized that through my entire career, no one ever told me that I made a, an impact on their life. And it was, it was two messages. It was, it was one, um, if you think about something, make sure you say it because all of those laws 
expressed to her how important they were uh, in impacting her, but also it just speaks to the impact that you and I have on people, on people's lives. And I think every decision, that many decisions that I've made along the way have not been in isolation. They've been as a uh, sort of a, a reflection or, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess a composite of the people that I've been exposed to along this path, along this journey. So fellows, you know, we had our, we were at AOSM last week. Uh, Nick Verma is now and Shane No currently uh, fellowship uh, directors for our fellowship. We've trained uh, well over a hundred fellows. We have now have a shoulder fellowship, which uh, we've had about six or seven years. That's run by uh, uh, Greg Nicholson, and um, so we train six people a year now, four no five people a year now, and um, when it's it's the most heartwarming. Um, uh, positive experience when we have these yearly fellowship reunions where people come back, you get to hear how they're doing, you know, not just professionally with their families and you realize the impact you have on them. I think about that fellowship. I think what you're saying before is like, look, um, you, you train at a great place, you know, you, you get all this experience, but the fellowship is one year where you get very close to the people you train and um, you get very close if it's a mentorship model, which is one of the things that Bernie Bach, who's really the founder of our fellowship, who really did, you know, deserves you know, essentially all the credit for getting things going and keeping it going in part, um, is that we've maintained a mentorship model where you really get, you know, Denora, you mentioned, who graduated from your program. Uh, Damador, he's um, he's been with me almost three months, and it's every single day he becomes a component of your practice and the opportunity to. Uh, it's not about the technical side; it's it's because all of us get. You know, I said you. I didn't even know how to do an Scott cuff. I didn't think I'd ever be able to do it uh, when I came out of uh, fellowship. It's about the, in my mind, it's about the ability to take care of people and run a practice. And most people are technically adept enough that they're going to be able to do the things they need to do over some period of time. And the fellowship helps you get there faster. But the, the fellowship allows you to get to know people very, very well, have an enormous impact on them and watch how they develop intellectually and make decisions. I mean, in the end of the day, you know, you and I go into this because we care about people. And we want to make a difference. But to be able to actually do that in some uh, functional way where, you know, you maintain the balance of ethics and compliance and and, and, and interpersonal skills and, and, and the understanding and respect for the privilege we have to actually have an enormous, absolutely an enormous impact on someone's life. And then build into that is the different systems that you're exposed to, the professional sports, the, the college sports, the, you know, the, the adolescents, the parents, all of that. I mean, we have the greatest job ever. And to be able to share that with, and, and, and influence someone's decision-making and, and have them be an extension of you in some part, whatever they choose to do, is probably one of the greatest privileges at all of all. And I think, you know, it often gets asked that question, what legacy do you want to live? That would be, that's one of the most important things that I think I'd like to be, you know, sort of um, have, have had successfully, you know, done, which has uh, been a, had a positive impact on a number of individuals in addition to taking care of people and making a difference in their lives. I mean, we're really just caretakers um, in, in the true sense of the word. So fellowship is part of that. Yeah, and and you know, as physicians, we can only take care of so many patients in our lifetime, right? We can That's see right. sixty or seventy in a day if we're busy and the things that we do. But being able to positively influence uh, a next generation, you're able to help care for patients that you'll never meet, and uh, it's really kind of cool. And so, yeah. you know, congratulations for having such an amazing fellowship and just, uh, you know, I know that uh, there's a lot of listeners out there right now. They're writing down notes saying, I got to go meet Brian Cole so I can get that fellowship. But uh, no, we really appreciate that. Another one of your great passions, Brian, is, 
is we talked about this, which is cartilage and now into the role of sort of orthobiologics. And, and I thought you brought up a really excellent point, which was when you first started out at Rush, there was really no organization in this process at all. It was in the infancy of what's happening. And, and to be perfectly honest, uh, there was still a lot of confusion with multiple societies and not necessarily consensus building. And uh, so one of the things that's happened now uh, is the Biologics Association was developed, which is a collaboration between ANA and AOSSM and IOF and ASCS and ICRS. And I know that you're integrally invo- involved in that. And, you know, that's a whole other episode in and of itself. But I guess I would like to ask you, you know, where do you see the role of orthobiologics in the future of orthopedic care as we move forwards? Um, I think it, it, like many new technologies and, you know, when we start to get initial access, especially in a setting where the regulatory barriers are, were, were relatively low, uh, it, it's, again, I guess like fellowship, it gets to be the sort of organized chaos. There's a lot of opportunities. There's conceptually and intuitively um, a tremendous potential, but um, it's taken us, you know, at least I think ten years to sort of get our arms around what is and what isn't. And um, I much prefer the term orthobiologics than I do the term um, regenerative medicine. Um, you know, the reality is certainly the healing environment is a regenerative process, and um, the, we've there's been a lot of confusions. I know you've had Scott Bruder on your show and others. Um, who have been you know, really deeply involved in the research. And my exposure early on uh, started with uh, research in PRP and culture methods with cartilage and rotator cuff tendon and, and, and tendinopathy. And just was really interested in the in vitro side of it to say, you know, does this make sense? Can you build a thesis based upon preclinical work, whether it be basic science or in vivo animal work? And does that actually translate into humans? And all along the way, and then you get some things that, are tr- that trickle in that are available to us that are autologous and sometimes allogeneic. And it's been, you know, uh, incumbent upon us to obviously do a good job and not just do, not just make statements that are based on intuition or what seems plausibly correct, but actually do the work to say, does it make a difference? And there's, and in despite the fact that we try to be diligent on the in vitro, then in vivo, and then clinical side, there's often that disconnect at the 50 yard line between what happens in real life versus what happens to small animals. I think we really have to think about this as a way to harness our body's inherent desire to heal and optimize the environment. And I think we've come a long way. I can tell you that I firmly believe that PRP uh, with hyaluronic acid as a dominant treatment strategy, uh, as, a, as an option for patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee to make them feel better, but not to reverse or, or even uh, um, suspend the degenerative process. I can tell you that I believe that PRP and maybe bone marrow aspirin, for example, uh, might make a difference in healing rates for some rotator cuff tears. Um, I think there's a lot of data that we've done a really good job of sort of parsing this out, but I think the takeaway is that it's orthobiologics. It's taking an inherently compromised host, which is our patient, and trying to optimize the environment and doing it in an ethical way because we're still, there's still positive reimbursement pathways. So we have that blend of business and medicine and ethics that we have to sort of uh, navigate in 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 a graceful way. Yeah, no, I like that. The ability... The human body does have a remarkable ability to heal itself, uh, and sometimes it gets stalled. Uh, so the idea of being able to uh, help the body heal itself and optimizing that environment with the tools that we have, I think really makes a lot of sense. And I do think there's a growing body of literature to suggest that these things will you know, hopefully make a difference uh, for our patients moving forward. So really a great, a great summary there. So as we're getting ready to close, 
we always like to sort of focus on a, a question of something that I think is one of the great strengths of the individuals that we're speaking with. And I think that uh, uh, no one seems to get more done than you do, Brian. So just give us a little advice on work-life balance as far as how that manages out for you and your family. You know, it's funny that, you know, that being the last question of our, of our discussion, that's often the first question that I get asked by people when I meet them. And, um, you know, uh, I think the, none of us get this done um, without a team approach. And I know it also, it often becomes a cliche, but uh, being a a good leader, if you will, but uh, doing so in a way that can enable the best of the best around you to be their best and surrounding yourself with excellence. You know, what I alluded to with Bernie has probably been the most critical thing. None of the people I know who are successful, who I consider successful and by whatever metric we sort of evaluate them have done it alone. I mean, they always have surrounded themselves by just great people. And I have a team, you know, just where I am right now that the, that rarely, I mean, the attrition in my team is very, very, very low. And it's usually because people either they get married, they have children, they change their work path, uh, but not because of the job they have. And I have uh, four people on my research team, three administrative assistants, three physician assistants. And yet I'm still able to, to, to do the things I love doing best with having the supportive role of people and, and giving them what they need to do to feel good about their careers. So understanding what people, people around you, what they want to achieve, delegating to them responsibly, providing you know regular follow-up. We have weekly meetings, we have weekly research meetings, keeping people engaged and feeling proud about what they're doing and valuing them. They're not necessarily valued by their salary. They're valued by the the intrinsic, you know, aspects of what they get to do day in, day out. So getting the best out of the people around you and and, and, and frankly, having fun along the way. I, I was thinking about this recently. I think, you know, when you and I think about the, the, the percentage of time we spend in the office, you know, or treating patients or doing surgery, it's no less than generally 50 to 60% of what we do. And then you add sleep in it and that's another 20%. So if you take inventory, all the buckets that you, you know, that occupy your, your day. Uh, so once you put family um, and, and recreation and maybe spiritual and, and then sleep, everything else that's left is kind of this stuff. So if you're not happy going to work during the day, find something else. And I think for me, it's just been creating a really positive environment by great people. And, and that's how we get a lot done. And it's not that I get a lot done. It's that we get a lot done. And again, I know it sounds like a cliche. It's something to talk about in the military and everything else. You listen to Colin Powell and go back to, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you can find all these great quotes, but modern day me and you getting stuff done and, and being excellent at what we do is this balance between, you know, uh, perfection and efficiency, not being too hard in you know, one direction or the other, but really surrounding yourself with greatness and, um, and having an open mind and being able to actually take a little bit of criticism along the way and saying maybe that uh, 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 I can be better than I was the day before by having even smarter people than you around you helping you be better. That's, you know, I, it, it sounds a little bit idyllic, but if I had to encapsulate, I think those are the important points that have enabled me to, to, to have this sustainability and, and feel good about getting up each day and going to work, uh, as, as, you know, which is 56% of my day or my time. Yeah. So relationships, surround yourself with greatness, efficiency, and finding a balance, uh, you know, just great, great advice. And it's why you're able to accomplish so much. I mean, I, you know, look, Brian, you know, there's so much to thank you for, for all the efforts that you have, whether it's your, your fellows, your residents, the research that you've done, the time you spend with society, the, the, the literature, all the things that you do are just so remarkable. We really want to 
know, thank you for your commitment and your passion for progressing the science and clinical research in orthopedics, as well as your desire to educate and to share uh, all that you have learned. So it's been a pleasure having you on. Scott, thank you. I, I'm honored that you asked me to speak to you. You've had some amazing guests uh, throughout the years, and uh, congratulations on uh, just a, really a wonderful podcast. So uh, I'm really, uh, it's, it's, I'm proud to be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, can't thank you enough. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Till next time.